I think you ladies did a really good job of talking about the dangers of pushing someone too far um, in their exercise program as someone who has migraine-associated dizziness. So what are the signs that you have pushed a patient too far? It, it, it's you know, sort of like working with somebody who's is close to unconscious. They shut down. Um, these folks become extremely photophobic, phonophobic. They um, really get extreme headaches sometimes. Um, I, I think they're, at least my impression is that their balance gets worse, and they're definitely more sensitive to motion in the periphery when I have pushed them way too hard. That's what I see. I try to look for autonomic reactivity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, look for changes in their breathing and sweat patterns. Um, but I think that kind of that cortex shutdown thing, where they just you can see them not being able to think, you can see them, and I do see the balance pretty acutely start to worsen as we're trying to work on an activity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you see the nausea too sometimes, Jane? Yes, very much. Because some of mine will actually get nauseous in front of me, and then I know that I've pushed them way too far. So I, I don't. Do you guys use a, a verbal analog scale? We do. Uh, I know I do. What yes. What are your rules for that you went too far, guys? If they are a seven out of ten, then they need to stop. We need yeah. to change. We need to stop. We need to change the activity or go on to something less provoking. And, and some people think it's kind of like a situation where you've got to patients who they'll go from a one or a two to an eight. If you're not careful, then you have the other people who they'll build slowly. And so sometimes it takes a little bit of a skill with the patient to know, are they somebody who has a what I call a brittle, brittle threshold? And they're going to go up really high and fast and they'll monitor and move a little slower than someone who I know builds it slowly and they can bring it down. So I think some of it depends on the patient. But the track there, their specific rating is very key as well as watching their reactivity. Okay. So what once you push that patient too far, what do you do? I do um I do guided relaxation I'll bring them into the room, I'll turn off the lights, um, we'll do something I call grounding where they'll lay down on the bed and, and reattach to somatosensory cues, very stable somatosensory cues. If they become nauseated, I actually have found that putting some peppermint oil on a wet washcloth and a cold washcloth and put it on the forehead the smell of the peppermint can decrease the nausea. Um, and sometimes I'll actually work them through a guided relaxation. I'm a biofeedback therapist, so I've often found that a guided relaxation session can sometimes help them um, kind of reground themselves um, and calm back down. I I close uh, or shut the shut the door. I actually sit in the dark with them. It's actually pitch black. Same kind of thing. And I'll get a cold pack, which is what Janine sort of suggested to uh, to cool them off. That often helps them significantly. Um, and I, I haven't done the relaxation. I like that idea. I've done it occasionally, but not on a regular basis. And that sounds like a really good idea. And do you do I, anything different, Kim? No, I mean, I agree. We'll turn the lights off in the room and have them sit down. Like if they were doing the exercise or whatever was provoking um, standing or walking, we'll, we'll definitely take them down to the next level of sitting, um, if need be, lying, ice packs. We have also treated them um, or instructed them in mantra training. We found that with patients who are anxious or have high um, uh, problems with migraine anxiety, 
in addition to the dizziness, we mm -hmm. do a mantra class, and we will um, help them do that type of a, a relaxation using their mantra. We um, do labyrinth walks where we get them to try and focus one point of attention and, and calming down. I think that that helps some. Mm -hmm. What's the labyrinth walk? The labyrinth walk is a, a labyrinth has been used with a mantra repetition. Okay. And if you can buy labyrinths that come rolled up like a carpet and spread it out on the floor, or you can get a labyrinth and print it on your courtyard patio, and so you're okay. actually walking the the um, the walls of the labyrinth or the or the aisles, I guess would be more descriptive of the labyrinth, as you're chanting your mantra to yourself, not really out loud. Um, but trying to bring one point of attention, slow down, and focus Okay. Mm -hmm, to decrease the anxiety. So Jill Borman at the VA has um, put together a mantra program to use with veterans with anxiety and PTSD. And we found that that's been helpful with our head injury patients and uh, sometimes with our migraine patients in particular. It helps them calm down and center and come back to focus. I think those are all really great suggestions. So we know that a patient with migraine-associated dizziness will progress more slowly with their treatment. And I know that whenever we're evaluating this type of a patient, we give them very conservative expectations for progress. So what is your typical length of treatment and frequency of treatment? Um, and given the complexities of these diagnoses, are you, do you even extend those deadlines so much longer as compared with other vestibular diagnoses? You want to take a shot at that first, Janine? Um, I would say in, in my outpatient clinic, depending on um, how stable they are, sometimes the first couple visits are a couple can be almost a couple months apart. If 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 I was playing a role in advocating them to get more medically stable, stabilized. If they are stable, um, then very often I want to see them. I would prefer to see them over almost a three to six month window. So I would see them more no more often than once every two weeks. Um, I'm probably on average see them um, eight to ten follow-up visits, um, and I do tell them if you want to make a difference with this, it will be over a three to six month window. It's not going to be over three to six weeks. So I usually try to get them in that mode, just even the way I set up their treatment sessions, so they know there's there are things they're going to be needing to do, things they're going to need to change. I, you know, I talk about this um, this hypersensitivity of their cortex, and that we just need to coax it along and and gradually turn things around. So I prefer to spread it out. Yeah, I also do, with those folks, I think you're absolutely right. I probably don't spread it out nearly as well as you do, um, but I might see them once every week and a half or something like that. And we also, sometimes with these folks, I'll actually suggest that they, if they're really anxious, that they consider counseling to see if that will decrease their anxiety because if they're less anxious, they seem to get better faster. So I'll sometimes try try that too. But we, you know, we have the problem with third-party payers that sometimes if you stretch it out too too far, they um, start questioning whether you should um, even be seeing these people at, uh, at you know every two weeks. So that's one of the problems that we have in our world. Now, Kim probably has yeah. less trouble. Yeah, with that. Well, I'd have to say, you know, just even today, I had to write a justification letter because an insurance company um, told me that my therapy was um, maintenance 
because of the frequency right. that I was using. So, yeah. Right. It is an issue. So I have to be careful. Even though I agree with you, that's what I'd like to do, I can't always do that because, uh, you know, the third-party payer is going to say we're not going to pay. And that's the worst thing you can do if you, if we really are making a difference in these folks uh, for them not even be able to get our care. I have the luxury of a military medical system where our patients are in a wounded warrior battalion and housed in the building next to our facility. So they um, actually come to us twice a week, and after four weeks they have a revisit with the physician that made the referral to us. So we're seeing them, and it is not uncommon for them to um, be here for more than the typical six to eight weeks that we would treat them for vestibular rehab, they're usually here closer to four months mm-hmm. as it just takes longer to make progress and sustain the progress. I agree because I I, I, I like the analogy and, and use it sort of like Janine was talking about. Um, my analogy of migraine dizziness is that I, the the brain on drugs, when we were little, there was this brain that would look like all these fireworks were going off. And what we need to do is is calm it down. So I always explain that it, it's sort of like we're putting a black cover over it and making it quiet so that people then, you know, the, this, this poor uh, overactivity within the brain seems to, to decrease significantly. And I think we and have that's touched what upon... Fire. Sorry. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, if you fire them up with too much exercise too quick, what you do is you just irritate it. It's like an irritative lesion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good uh, I think that, that leads into the next question of, in terms of exercise prescriptions, how many exercises do you prescribe, and what's the frequency and intensity of those exercises? And I guess if you elaborate, you know, how much do you do in the beginning, and then as they progress... Um, do you increase the exercises? Kim, your population is young. If yeah. you want to start, because yours is a very different population than probably what Janine and I see. Yeah, our population is young, and all of our appointments are an hour with the patient, whether they're an initial eval or a follow-up. So we will see them for an hour. We may not do physical vestibular demanding exercises that entire hour. Um, Certainly we will be doing some home education, patient education and instruction as well as exercises. We work really hard to find out where that patient's threshold is as to what their tolerance is and build on that, um, which includes aerobic conditioning because they are expected to go back to a very active lifestyle. They're on limited duty until they clear and can go back to their units. So we're um, trying to also focus on what job details do they have that they're going to have to be able to perform when they when they leave. Um, and we did, we will just, it will vary. I mean, we don't give a certain number of exercises. We go the amount of time that they can tolerate, and hopefully that time increases as they're with us over the course of the weeks. But it really, it really is based on their tolerance. Mm-hmm. Janine, what do you do different? You know, my, my follow-ups are generally about 45 minutes. I would definitely say I think the aerobic component is actually a very important one, and actually with migraineurs, needs to be carefully prescribed, and a physical therapist mm-hmm. can do that very well. I actually do things where we'll figure out age, you know, max heart rate, and actually some migraineurs will actually trigger a migraine if they go 
into aerobic too heavily, too fast. And so we work with really sub-aerobic thresholds for a number of weeks. I get patients to start perceiving, you know, Borg exertion scales to really watch, you know, let's keep this on the low end until you feel like you're, we can progress it into even, even a 60% aerobic threshold. And so I am actually progressing that with my patients. So I say, I would say I also do aerobics with my patients. I work on their balance for a majority of the time. And then we intersperse the habituation, probably three different doses over the 45 minutes, depending on how they're doing um, with the habituation. And then if they are to the point of adaptation, then we do one session with the adaptation, one to two minutes, um, depending on if they're to that point. And then, then it's, then it's um, depending, I like how Kim said, we look at their job description. Well, I think that's really key for are migraineurs in general, you know, are grocery stores a problem? Are they somebody who's had migraines for a number of years, they've developed visual motion sensitivity, they're not going into grocery stores, their migraines have been stabilized, and can you at that point add visual motion desensitization? Um, but that's, that's at the very, very end. If patients are very stable and doing well, um, trying to look at what is limiting them, what do I think we can push through, and, and can we get the system to systematically desensitize? Yeah, I think I agree. One of the things that I do in the home exercise program is I tell them what not to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't look at the computer. Don't uh, don't watch like MTV because that may make you sick. Uh, you know, or try it and tell me if it does. And if it does, don't watch it. You know, things like that. Because I think there are a lot of things around the within their own environment that trigger the symptoms, and they don't even they aren't really aware that those things make them worse. So mm, I like them to, to actually start to identify what makes them worse and at least for a while try and avoid that until we can get them so that they are able to do it eventually, hopefully. Um, yeah, cause, and I am not real aggressive with these folks at all with the exercises that I have them do. I, it's rare that I probably ever get anybody to do like a VOR times one exercise for two minutes with migraine because it just makes them sick. So what I'll do is I might say, spread that two minutes out over the whole day at home. And I want you to try it for 10 seconds and then another, you know, if it triggers your your, your headache or you feel don't feel good, um, try it again in, in another half hour. Because I want them to, to do those kinds of things, but um, they just can't tolerate it. So I really change the way I prescribe my exercises with people with migraine because if I'm too aggressive, I definitely make them worse. You know, that's really powerful stuff, Sue, um, because I think one of the things we need to offer them is the fact that perhaps movement and balance challenges can become something that they can do, but if they overdose, they've done that on their own. They've overdosed on their own, and so to give them a positive movement experience and that, that they can bring their symptoms back down, that they can monitor their symptoms. I love that idea of analyzing the triggers. I've always thought of that with respect to diet, but it makes a lot of sense for patients to be looking at what's, what's analyzing, you know, what, what, what are the triggers in the environment. And certainly things like rose-tinted glasses and things where we do compensation even before mm -hmm. we start doing any kind of desensitization is, is big with migraine patients. Right. I've had some good success with, with some of those kind of techniques. With And I'm sure both of you guys see this, too, that I know that they have migraines when they walk in if they're wearing sunglasses. That's like a given. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> if they have a dark pair of sunglasses on and it's cloudy, they have migraines. That makes the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think that is all for my questions for today. Are there any other final thoughts about exercise prescription in a patient with migraine-associated dizziness that you would like to add? You know, one I was thinking of when Sue was talking about um, the fact that atypical migraineurs go undiagnosed and poorly mismanaged, I really believe that the physical therapist's clinical examination with the use of infrared, with looking at atypical nystagmus patterns, and we play a vital role in helping these patients in, with our clinical exam. When someone comes in with, you know, the doctor's convinced they have BPVV, and you find these really bizarre direction-changing, you know, persistent nystagmus patterns, and you're going to be in a position, very often as a physical therapist is going to be spending, you know, an hour, an hour and a half with these patients looking at their history. And so I think we play a real crucial role in the differential diagnosis, both from our clinical tests of, you know, definite end organ presentations, you know, head thrust abnormalities versus people who are showing no evidence of unilateral functioning, yet they're having these distinct episodes. And we're the ones that connect the migraine travelers. Um, and so I really think we have a lot to offer the medical system with, res with respect to these patients as far as even differential diagnosis. Yeah, the only other thing I wanted to mention is that, that when you see somebody, well, rarely will somebody even present with this diagnosis unless they're sent by a neurologist, but there's a high prevalence of BPPV associated with this. So if you get somebody with BPPV and they just still complain of all these strange-type symptoms, then I think that's when it's time to obviously think yeah. about lots of things, but also put migraine dizziness on the differential list, especially if they're young, between 20 and 40, and especially if they're women. Um, I would highly suspect this or MS. I know in terms of the one differential diagnosis question that I always ask is, especially for women, um, well, actually not for men at all, but is, do your symptoms have any relationship to your menstrual cycle? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah, so I think I think that's that's really key. And, and the other thing, I'm sure everybody does, but it is critical, is to remember to always ask if there's a history of migraine in the family. And uh, if they say they don't know, ask them to go home and ask, because I've had many families, many patients who say, oh, nobody has a migraine in my family. And they say no. So they come back a week later, and, I say, and I'll say, well, you know, what's up? And they'll say, I just found out everybody in my family has migraine. <laughs> and I didn't know. They never told me. <laughs> so this is not something that families necessarily share. So I do think it's important that you, you ask more than once if you suspect that it's migraine because they they aren't real good at this. <laughs> no, they're not. No, they're not, <laughs> especially men. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, well, ladies, thank you so much for participating. You're welcome. And I hope everyone has a good evening. Take care. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.